right. Well, thank you. Uh, thanks for being here. Welcome, welcome for those of you who are worshiping uh, online as well as in person. Want to um, <clears throat> yeah extend um, just warm greetings in the name of the Lord. Thank you for being the church and for bringing it into um, wherever place you're worshiping. As you come into worship today, um, the question that I want to ask of you is, uh, on your scorecard of worship, what would define a win for you when it comes to worship today? What is it about this worship service, like what would you need to see happen in order for you to say, this was a good worship service? Like this was a great worship service, like this was really, really good. On your scorecard of worship, what would a worship win look like for you today? Maybe for some of you, it would be, well, if every song that I sing is something that I know and I like, that would be a good worship service for me. For others of you, it would be, well, if um, the songs move my heart, especially the last song, the one that we walk out of here with, if that song moves my heart, then I would say, yeah, I think we had a good worship service. If the sermon that I listen to really moves me in my heart, it really challenges it, me, it comforts me, it makes me laugh and it makes me cry, then it's a good worship service. If I feel like I came here and I walked out of here experiencing the love of people and maybe the love of God, then that's a good worship service. What would it be for you? Like, what is a win when it comes to worship? What are you looking for on the scorecard of worship that makes it such that what happens in here right now in this next hour or so would, consider, would, would make you consider this to be a great worship service? Another way to ask it is if you were to walk out of here and someone is not here today in the worship service and they were to ask you, hey, John, hey, Alex, hey, uh, whoever you are, how was worship today? What would cause you to give a response of, it was a great worship service? What I was reading this week from a man named Chris Burns Love is the question, how was worship, is actually the wrong question. In fact, he posits that that question, how was worship, ought to forever be deleted from our vernacular when it comes to worshiping God. How was worship, the only person that could answer that question is the one who is being worshiped. The only one who could rightly answer the question of how was worship is the object of that worship. In other words, if the constant question on our mind is, how was worship, then it betrays a deeper issue, it betrays a deeper idolatry, that we have not come to worship God as we may think we have, we've come to worship our experience of worship, which is a completely other thing. In fact, if the question at the forefront of our hearts is, how was worship, then the deeper reality is that instead of coming to worship God, we've come to worship our God, which ends up being ourself. It's a hard reality to come to grips with. But I want to ask you that question. As you come into worship today, what would constitute good worship for you? And the answer is probably a lot less subjective to you and to me than we think. It's not about what we think. It's about what God gets. As we come into worship today, I want to give my best worship to God and I confess that it's easy for me to determine my worship and how good it was by how people respond to the songs, how people respond to the Word of God, how I do as I preach the Word of God, how I feel as I sing the songs of worship, 
But all of that gets blown out of the water when we look at a biblical picture of what worship is. Worship was never about the subjective experience of the people, first and foremost. It was about the worth that we ascribe to the God that we've come to worship. How do we worship well? It begins by seeing God well. How do we see God well? Because worship, in any aspect, whether it's a religious or non-religious sense, worship is always a response that we give to the greatness of something else. When you eat an amazing meal and you talk spontaneously about how that great that meal was, that is worship. You're declaring the worth and the greatness of a meal that you ate. When you see someone wearing an amazing dress or amazing shoes and your immediate response is, oh my goodness, those are the best shoes I've ever seen in my life. Or a car or uh, a cow or whatever it is that you've seen, oh my goodness, that's amazing. Or a play on sports center. Worship is the natural response of a creation when you see something that is great. That's what worship is. And so if you want to have good, awesome, excellent worship, it begins with a clear and proper view of who God is. In the place in Scripture, in the place in the Psalter, where people of God have gone for the past 2,700 years to find out how can I worship God rightly is Psalm 8. And so we're going to read from Psalm 8 today. This is a monumental psalm. It's a huge psalm and probably the first of all of the psalms that really enter us into a place of worship. Psalm 1 and 2 are kind of the double doors that lead us into psalms. Psalms 1 through 7 talk about the human condition and the brokenness of their lives. And then Psalm 8 is the first one that really explodes in worship and teaches us how we can be worshipers of the God of the universe. And so what we're going to do is we're going to read Psalm 8, and my aim is that today I'll talk about the first half of it, and then next week I talk about the second half of it, because there's so much in here uh, that is of importance that asks questions and gives answers to the ultimate questions in life, namely, who are we as people and who is God? Massive, massive, massive pieces of our mental map that if we get them right, It can be transformative, not only to our worship, but in the way that we worship through life. Psalm 8, it says, for the director of music, according to Gittith, a psalm of David. So we know that the author of this hymn is David, the king who was once a shepherd, the eighth of eight eight sons of Jesse. It says, according to Gittith, which is most likely either a musical term for the melody in which this psalm was to be sung, or an instrument upon which it was to be played, a Gittith, kind of like a guitar. And it says, for the director of music. In other words, David wrote this to be distributed amongst the praise leaders of Israel in order that they, in their given context, would be able to lead their people in worship. In other words, this psalm is deeply instructive in how a congregation ought to be shaped according to the word of God when it comes to the worship of the king. This is what David has written this psalm for. And it's no wonder that as you read it, you will see that many hymns and many songs and many contemporary Christian songs have been written based off of the words and the language of Psalm 8. I'm going to read the entire psalm here, and we're going to focus on the first three and a half verses. Okay? This is the word of God for the people of God for us today. It says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, 
the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place? What is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is God's word. As you see, David kicks open the praise portion of the book of Psalms by hanging this banner over our heads that says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. He closes this hymn, this psalm, with the exact same words, forming what's called an inclusio in Hebrew poetry. It's an inclusion saying this is, this is what the hymn is about. And then in the middle of the psalm, it says this is the high point, this is the theme, this is the thesis, right? or this is one of the most important phrases. The question, and there's two that we ask here, the question that David asks in verse 4 is, what is man? that you're mindful of him. If, oh Lord, our Lord, your name is majestic in all the earth, then what the heck are we? Like, what are we that you would remember us? And the answer to this question is so huge that it, has, it, it is transformative for the way that we live. And so rather than trying to tackle both of these questions at once today, I'm going to bracket this off for next week and today answer the first question. What does it mean that our Lord, his name is majestic in all the earth. The whole point of this psalm is that we would end up, right, as we hang this, again, this, this, this central idea that God is majestic and he's great and he's glorious, and then he goes through why, and then at the end, the goal is at the end of this hymn that we would be able to say along with all the earth, oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic really is your name. So my aim is by the end of next week that you would, your heart would soar in the worship of God and that you would declare his majesty and be willing to go to wherever you need to go in order to declare his greatness. Today, the question is, what makes God so great? Like, what is it that makes God so great? How do we see that? Where do we see that? We look at three things. And the first two things I want to talk about rather briefly, and then I want to kind of hang out with the third thought a little bit more. Again, first four verses of Psalm 8 are what we're going to look at today. Here's the first thing that we see. God's greatness. Okay, God's greatness we see this in verse 1, is seen in every corner and every crevice of the cosmos. In every corner of the world, in every corner of existence, God's greatness is seen. It's what he says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You remember, David is writing this from his puny little country called Israel. There were many other countries, many bigger, many richer, many stronger, many better in the eyes of the world than Israel. Israel is this tiny little thing. But God decided to hang his banner over Israel so that the world would see that he is great. The gods of other religions in those days, the Canaanite gods, uh, the Egyptian gods, the Phoenician gods, the gods of the Philistines, all of, they, they all had their own little gods, but each of them was confined to their own geographic area, to their own local territory. These were local with a little G gods, little gods that these people would pray to because they feel like God is, their God is localized and is effective for their people, but not for everybody else. But there was this tiny little nation called Israel whose God said, my 
territory and domain is not limited just to Israel. My name will be great in all the earth. That sets the God of Israel apart. People are like, my goodness, what is going on here? This blows out of the water this notion, right? That God is just a little territorial God just for us here worshiping in Winter Garden. When he says, how great is your name in all the earth, you see the greatness of a person by the vastness of the area in which people declare the greatness of that person. I began to recognize this the first time I went, well, one of the first times I went on a mission trip, I think it was to Belize. I was trying to figure out where it was. I think it was in Belize. But some time ago, maybe like 20 years ago or so, 25 years ago, I'm not exactly sure, there was this basketball, kind of like underground, grassroots, street-level movement called the And One Basketball Movement. I don't know if you, if you were there at its genesis. Uh, now, like, people who come out of it is like uh, people like the professor, Grayson Boucher, he's one of the main figureheads of it. But And One was a mixtape that came out. During the time, all, the, all there was was the NBA. That's all it was. And then you could watch the Olympics on TV when it came around, and you'd realize the greatness of, like, Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant, LeBron James, people like that. But all they had was the NBA, and then there was this streetwear, streetball movement called And One. And what they would do is they would sell sneakers and basketball attire, and whenever you bought these shoes, they would give you what was called a mixtape, like a VHS tape, where you could watch these streetball players with people's like, names like Hot Sauce and Escalade and Skip to My Loot. These guys were like the Harlem Globetrotters on steroids, like for a completely different generation. They did tricks, they would embarrass people. I mean, they were, and then kids grew up on the playground who had access to this video wanting to be like them. They did all the trick shots, they did all the dribbling moves, they practiced. I would practice in front of my mirror trying to be like them. It was crazy. But the only way you could get your hands on these was if you got that video. This is before the days of the internet. So and one comes out and you pop in this video and you're like, all of a sudden, you become privy to a completely different brand of basketball. Completely different, the kind that they play in the parks and in the, in the, in the neighborhoods on the streets. Like streetball at its finest. And you watch it, and you are blown away by their creativity. But when you go to regular people, yeah, hey, have you heard of the And One streetball movement? Nobody would know. No one would know. Because you had to have the tape. And then slowly people started getting the tape. They started distributing. Then it became out on DVD and MP, whatever it is, and, and circulating it. Now, I remember on my first mission trip, one of the first mission trips I went to to Belize, we were out in like this podunk, like middle of nowhere place. I think it was like, I forget if it was like a Mayan ruin, Mayan village or something like that, but there's, people had no business, they had no access to any kind of civilization. It was literally on the edge of civilization. <laughs> so we're out there and we're doing the, like our worship and VBS, children's ministry and stuff like that. And there's a basketball hoop and so I went out there and there was a couple guys playing, they're teenagers and then some kids playing. So I, I started playing with them and I started engaging with them and in their, they speak English, but it's a pidgin English. Um, it's a different kind of English. And so I said, hey, um, who's your favorite basketball player? Who's your favorite player? Grant Hill, Michael Jordan, who's your favorite? And they start like doing these streetball motions and they're like, my favorite is hot sauce. I was like, what? What do you know about hot sauce? How do you know about hot sauce? How in the world did you get access to videos where you can see hot sauce? My favorite is the professor or half man, half amazing. I was like, what? And I began to realize that the glory of the And One streetball movement had spread beyond a locality and was reaching literally the far corners of the world. That's how you begin to realize the greatness of a person. 
Not because somebody here says, you know what, DL is a really good basketball player, Josiah is a great basketball player, Josh Sohn is a great basketball player. Outside of this like area, nobody knows who we are. But the professor, hot sauce, all over the world, people know. That's how you know the greatness of a person and the vastness of their glory. The God of Israel, through the inspired words of David, David writes, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Don't get it mistaken as you pray for our workers who are serving in every continent of the world outside of Antarctica in order to bring the name of this God and to propagate his glory throughout the ends of the earth. This is not a white man's religion, as some at one point said it was. The glory and the majesty of God, how majestic. Majestic literally means how powerful, how great, how grand, how strong are you in all the earth. Well, just in case we get confused, which God are we talking about? When he says, O Lord, our Lord, he's not just saying, O David, our David. That's not what he's saying. When he says, O Lord, if you see in your Bible, it's in all capital letters. Whenever you see the word Lord in all caps, this is the divine name of God, Yahweh, the name given by God in Exodus to Moses at the burning bush when he said, who should I say sent you to Pharaoh, sent me to Pharaoh? What's your name? Who are you? And God says, I am who I am, Yahweh. Whose name is glorious and majestic in all the earth? David makes it clear. It's the God of this puny little nation of Israel. O Lord, our Lord. He's saying, O Yahweh, our Adonai, which means Lord, Master, Sovereign, Ruler over all things. O Lord, our Master, my personal God. It's like you go to the White House and you say, Oh my goodness, Mr. President, what an amazing house you have. And he says, Oh please, please Tim, please Hannah, just call me Joe. Adonai would be the name that we call him. He's our Lord, he's our God, he's our King, but he gives you his personal name. David is saying, just so that there's no mistaking, this is not the God of Canaan, it's not the God of, of, of any other nation. It's the God of Israel, the King of the world. He says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Then he goes on and he says, you've set your glory above the heavens. Do you understand, like, it's easy for us to kind of gloss through some of the things that are written here because we're trying to get the main point, the majesty of God. But when he says you've set your glory above the heavens, what he's saying is we get a glimpse of the glory of God when we worship God here. We get a glimpse of the glory of God at the cross and in creation and in many different ways that we see him. We get a glimpse of the glory of God when we see the church and, and all the ways in which we see him. But what he's saying, David is saying here, is your glory is set actually above the heavens so that what we see here is just a faint glimpse of the glory of God. Your fullness of your glory is not seen unless we go above the heavens to see and realize how awesome you really are. In other words, no one on earth has begun to comprehend the manifest and abject manifold glory of God, not on this earth at least. What we see of God is just a mere fraction of his glory. That means that the very best that we can give to God is the very least that God deserves. 
Whatever your vision of God mandates you give to him on this earth, we have only begun to see under the heavens a vision of his glory which is set far above, which we will one day see. And in heaven, we will give him the perfect glory and worship that is due his name. But right now, then, what we see is just a mere glimpse, the trickle-down effect of God's glory here on earth. What is a win for you in worship then? It has nothing to do with how I'm feeling. It has everything to do with the majesty of a God whose name is powerful and known all over the world. His greatness is seen in every corner and every crevice and every cranny and nook of the cosmos. It's the first thing that we see. We see God's greatness all over. The second thing that we see is God's greatness is seen in the weakness of the instruments that he uses. From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise. Okay, that's cool. Kids praise God. Infants praise God. We've seen YouTube videos of that. Last week we saw that as kids come up and they sing, yay, God is awesome. That's cool. But why does God do that? Look at what he says. Because of your enemies to silence the foe in the avenger. David's making it clear, if your name is great in all the earth, you have no rival, you have no equal, now and forever, God, you reign, absolutely. However, he does have enemies, and he does have foes, and he does have avengers, people that want to get back at God. And so what does God do? Now, you think about this, like, your, how majestic, how powerful is your name? Your name symbolizes everything about that person. How majestic, how powerful is your name? How, how powerful are you throughout all of the earth? And then these pretender little kings or people or gods rise up. How would God vanquish them? How would God deal with the enemy, his foes? How would he deal with people who want to avenge the glory of God because they're jealous? How would God deal with that? You think about how people of this world deal with it, or people not of, maybe not of this universe, but of cinematic universes. I asked Olivia, who are some great people? Who are some strong people who have enemies? And she said, oh, the people of Marvel. Um, I've mentioned this, but our kids have gotten all up into Marvel these days, and they call it Marvel, Marvel movies. <laughs> so they like to marvel at the Marvel cinematic world. And so I asked Olive, who are the strongest Marvel superheroes? Because I'm not a big guy. I, I like Black Panther, but that's pretty much the only one I've seen. She said, Hulk is so strong. So I said, yeah, Hulk is strong. I know Hulk. I grew up watching Hulk. He's like, you know, kind of looks like me, but he's green. He said, massive guy, super strong, very angry. He can, like, beat up everybody. So I said, how does Hulk deal with his enemies? She said, he crushes them. <laughs> That's what she said. Hulk crushes his enemies. That's what you would do if you were the Hulk and you had enemies. So I said, who else, what, who else is there? She said, Thor. Thor is really strong and He's superhero, and I know she thinks he's really good-looking also, but that's beside the point. Here's Thor. What does Thor do when he's got enemies? She says he calls down thunder and vanquishes his enemies. I didn't know that he, he did that, but I do know that he has a hammer that he likes to throw at people, and so I know that if he was, had an enemy, he could take his hammer, and he would throw it at somebody who like destroy and vanquish his enemies like that. And then there's Thanos. <laughs> Thanos, who has many enemies, apparently, and all he needs to do in order to get rid of his enemies, he snaps his finger and bam, they're all gone, a demonstration of his power, so that half of the world, is it half of the world? Half of the world gets destroyed and is eliminated. 
This is how powerful people of the world deal with their enemies, their foes, the Avengers. But what does God do? How does God deal with the insurrectionists? How does God deal with the rebels to his throne? How does God deal with these people who want to rise up onto the glory of God? From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. What does God do? He calls forth the praise of children and infants to vanquish the enemy. When we worship God, we're declaring his worth, his victory, his power, his might, his sovereignty. And when children praise God, it reminds the enemy of his defeat. That's how God chooses to work in order to deal with his enemies. He uses the weakest, the frailest, the smallest, the seemingly most insignificant things of this world in order to topple the strength of this world. And Jesus would later lift these words up off of Psalm 8 and onto his own lips when he talked to the Pharisees who were enemies of Jesus who were talking smack to him. And children began to praise Jesus. And Jesus said, from the lips of children and infants, you ordain praise to silence the foe, the enemy, the avenger. See, the greatness of a person is seen in how they can accomplish their mission even using the weakest of weapons. Paul writes the same thing to the Corinthian church, right? He uses the weak things of the world to shame the strong, the foolish things to shame the wise. You see the greatness of God in the weakness of the instruments that he chooses to use in order that it is abundantly clear to everybody that it's not because of the instrument, but it's because of the God behind it. You've heard stories like this before, right? If you take Harvest 201, you'll hear about this guy who was so good at ping pong that he beat these two kids playing, not with a ping pong paddle, but with a toothbrush. That's how good he was. A toothbrush, so that no one says, oh, you only beat us because it was the paddle. He uses inferior instruments in order to show the greatness of the one who holds those instruments in his hands. Oh my gosh, she's so good at lacrosse. How good, I, I mean, everyone is good, how good is she? Well, one time she scored 10 goals and her lacrosse stick was broken. Wow, she must really be good. Oh my gosh, how good is, how good is that basketball player? Well, one time he scored like 85 points and he did it without wearing any shoes on. Like, wow, he's really good. So that no one could say it's because of the shoes. The greatness of a person is seen in the way that they bring about victory even using inferior or weak or insignificant weapons in his hands to show his glory so that no one would be surprised or no one would be confused as to whose glory this was. If there's anyone that could understand this, anyone who could understand this, it would be this, the eighth and final son of Jesse, who as a shepherd boy, as a teenager, not as a warrior, not as a military man, not as an army guy, but as a shepherd, stood up and defeated the foe, the avenger, the enemy of God in the valley of the Philistines. It was this, not, not using armor, not using weapons, not using a sword, but using a sling, stones, and an unshakable faith in the God who was being mocked by a seeming giant here on earth. 
is anyone that could understand that. It was David, so that David was utterly clear. This was not me. Holy cow, like everybody knows it wasn't me. It wasn't this little six foot, five foot nothing dude, like teenage guy. It wasn't me. It was God who came and brought about this victory. God shows his greatness. We see his greatness through the weakness of the instruments that he chooses to use. That's the second thing that we see. The third thing, and this is where I want to spend most of our time this morning, God's greatness is seen when you consider the work of his fingers. When you consider the work of his fingers, you will begin to see his greatness. Okay, the greatness of God is seen all over the world. Maybe that seems distant to you. Greatness of God is seen in the weakness of the instruments that he uses. Maybe you don't feel like you're that weak of an instrument. But you will begin to see the glory of God and you will be reshaped and you'll be resized and you'll be able to worship rightly when you begin to consider the work of his fingers. This is what David says in verse 3. He says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place. Verse 4, here comes a hinge. What am I? What is man? What are you? What am I that you're mindful of him, the son of man? that you care for him. Something that David saw was so significant that it caused him to say, who am I? I may be a giant slayer. I might be the hero of Israel, but who am I really that you would think of me? How does he get to that point? As he's standing over a giant that he's just slain, how does he get to a point where he says, where everyone is praising him? Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. When everyone is praising his name, how does he get to a point where he says, I'm nobody, who, who am I that you would consider me? He says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. You remember who David was, right? Before he became a king and a poet and all that stuff, he was a shepherd. And as he's taking care of all those sheep under the night sky, how many times in the countryside of Judea do you think David, alone in his thoughts, would look up and see all the stars at night are big and bright deep in the heart of Judea? <laughs> how many times do you think David looked up and saw the stars? as they danced for the glory of God. Joseph Addison writes a poem. He says something like, in reason's ear, they all rejoice and utter forth in glorious voice. Singing sweetly as they shine, the hand that made us is divine. As he looks at all the stars in the sky as they twinkle, each of them made by God. Psalm 147 says he knows them each by name. Well, how hard is that for God? See, here's the, the problem. When he says, when I consider, it means to look deeply, to ponder. That's what David is calling us to do, to look deeply, to ponder at the heavens, the work of his fingers, the moon and the stars. Can I ask you when the last time you were able to ponder and look deeply into the heavens and the moon and the stars? See, the problem is in our light-polluted world in which we live, it's very difficult for us to do that. The things that we see shining at night are the fireworks, man-made fireworks out of Disney and out of Universal Studios. That's what we see. It's not enough darkness for us to see 
the beautiful tapestry of God's glory thrown up on the canvas of the skies here where we live. But in some places where you've been, we're driving in the jungles of Ecuador as we see shooting stars line the sky. When's the last time you were able to consider the glory of God in the heavens? When I was a first year in college, I took a class called Astronomy 101, not because I wanted to meet God, but because I wanted to get a good grade, an easy grade, an easy A. One of my friends at church, my older brother, uh, he said, hey, Larry, you got to take this class. You want to get an easy class to get acclimated to college? You got to take this class called Astronomy 101 with Tom Tolbert. That was the name of the professor. The problem was I don't remember hearing the professor's name. And so I just signed up for Astronomy 101 with Mr. Professor Trin. It was a completely different teacher. Professor Tolbert would put his exams, true-false exams, on reserve at the library so that you could study them so that you could get an easy A on the class. Professor Trin did not do that. He taught astronomy, and he gave extremely difficult exams. And I got rocked. It was the first time in a long time that I got a really bad grade on my report card, my first semester in college, and I cried. Part of what made me do so poorly was that part of the class assignment was we had to go on the top of a building in the fall, and we had to look up, and there were stars that would be very visible in that time of night. And we would identify different stars in different constellations, and this was not something that I took very seriously. And so I remember going up with a week left in the class, a week left to do that before they had to get that grade in. With a week left, two, the first two days of the week were cloudy days, and so we couldn't see anything, and so they said the, the observatory is closed. So I went up on Wednesday or Thursday or Friday, went up on a couple of those days, the punchline is I failed both of those days, but that's not what's important here. I went up both times, and the TA was there, and she's like, all right, you ready? I was like, I'm ready. He started out with some easy ones. Can you point me to the Big Dipper? <laughs> I said, come on, are you serious? Big Dipper right there. That's correct. All right, let's go with the Little Dipper. Hey, Little Dipper, no problem. It's the one that looks exactly like that, but it's littler. It's right there. That's right. Uh, can you show me... Orion's belt. Like, yeah, if I could show you Orion's belt, it's those one, two, three dots right there, right in a row. Yep, Orion's belt. And then she started getting a little bit harder, a little bit trickier, things that I didn't really study. She's like, okay, good job. So far, you're doing well. Can you show me this? And she named the constellation that I'd heard of before, but I hadn't studied that. So I was like, oh, um, I think it's, uh, as I looked around at the sky, it was just a bunch of stars up there. I was like, mm. I think up there, <laughs> she's like, can you, can you point to it? I was like, yeah, right there. And then she said, do you mean that one right there? And I was like, yeah, that one. And she's like, sorry, that's incorrect. I'm like, darn, you tricked me. So bad, bad TA. Give me another one. Give me the next one. So she threw me the next one. It was another difficult, it was like a curveball. And I was like, oh, I think it's probably in that area. And by the time she was done, I think she was probably frustrated. She was spending that cold night up on the on the, the top of a building in an observatory trying to do astronomy 101 with a guy who hadn't studied his study guide. And at the end, she's like, I'm sorry, that's too many missed. You'll have to try again. Tried again the next day. Didn't do it well that next day either. Ended up getting a really bad grade in the class. But, 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 uh, I ended up not becoming an astronomer, obviously. I am a pastor because I learned something through that class that there's something that resizes a human being about considering the heavens, the moon and the stars, 
which God created and seeing that there is a God who made all this and it certainly isn't me if I can't even name half of the stars that she asked me to name. Something happens when we who think worship is about the kind of songs that I sing and how well I can enjoy this experience of worship. Something happens when we realize that the God to whom we sing is so much bigger than our feelings and our emotions. Have you had a time where you've been resized by the complete otherness and greatness of God? As a fourth year, fifth year, uh, my fifth year in Charlottesville after I graduated, was doing staff work like, uh, like our presider Jane had been doing. I was doing ministry and I, was, I had a small group of men up there um, and I was working with them and doing some discipleship with them. And, but once a semester what we would do is we would get our guitar our collective guitar, someone had a guitar, we would bring that and we'd drive up, we're lit, located in central Virginia, we'd drive out about 45 minutes up Skyline Drive, the Shenandoah Mountain Valley, Blue Ridge Mountains, and we would get as far away as we could from the road so that we couldn't see any car lights and just get into a place where it was as black as it could be on top of that mountain or on, the, on certain ledges of that mountain. And we'd just look at the stars and we would just worship God from up there. It's a completely different thing when you get out to a place where you can actually consider the heavens, the greatness of God, and realize that he's so much bigger than me. We were out there one night, and it was during what's called the Leonid meteor shower. This only came around once every, you know, like there's so many things that happen once every like several centuries. It's always something like that, an orange moon, a blood moon, something like that. And so this thing, there was this meteor shower, and they said, you will see falling stars as if they're coming and falling onto you. And so we went up into the, into the mountains that day, and we were singing songs of how great is our God and, um, you know, majesty. Um, majesty, your grace has found me just as I am. Let's just sing songs of of God's glory. It was just like completely reshaping us. We who thought we were big, bad, awesome people being completely resized under the night sky that God had created. And as we're singing during this meteor shower, like once it began, every probably 30 seconds, it felt like a, a shooting star was going by, like so bright and so brilliant. And if someone missed it, it's like just wait another half a minute, you'd see it again. And they were so bright that they would leave streaks on the sky for about one two, three, four, five, and then it would, it, would, it would disappear. It was like brilliant in all of its glory. And as we're sit, sitting there worshiping God, there's something that just completely shrinks you down to realize, man, there is an awesome creator to all of these things, and yet he knows us by name. Thinking about all the stars, and, and, and someone said you could see with the naked eye on the clearest night, you could see 5,000 stars in the sky. Can you imagine that? 5,000 stars that you could see with the naked eye. But if you scan back out, they said that you could see hundreds of billions of stars within our solar system through a telescope or through a, 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 whatever it is that allows you to see all of these stars. And this is this crazy kind of reality where we think about earth and how, how, how if I could just be the master of this earth, the ruler of this earth, if I could just be famous on this earth, but what really does that even mean? Earth is one of eight planets 
in our solar system, which is comprised of Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, right? And in an orbit, they go around the sun. Right? This is our solar system. If our solar system, the eight planets that make up our solar system, were the size of a coffee cup, then the galaxy in which we live, you know this, the Milky Way galaxy, if this is our solar system of eight planets and Earth is one of these eight things on here, if this is the size of our solar system, then our Milky Way galaxy, you know how big the Milky Way is? It's the size of North America. And we are on this one of eight planets living in one tiny little corner of that earth that floats around in space, held by the goodness and the glory of God. That's just within our Milky Way galaxy, but there are over 200 billion galaxies that have been seen and that scientists posit are out there, and it's ever-growing in number. That's crazy. And we think that God should be our heavenly butler, and we demand things of him. Wow. If you cannot get out to a place, and I'm, I'm looking forward to this week as I go to the mountains of North Carolina to get up there and to see the stars and to be reshaped again and resized when I sometimes think that I'm too big for my britches. You think about David as he stands over the, the giant Goliath. Everyone is saying he's so big and bad. What, what made David not look down on Goliath? Because he was looking up at his God. In awe and wonder of the God who threw a puny little guy named David, vanquished the enemies of Israel. If you can't get out somewhere to see that, uh, Louis Giglio, who I would recommend his, uh, you could YouTube a sermon that he preached called Indescribable. It is amazing in his treatment of God and view of, of creation. But he used to say that he would take books, he, he would buy a book, astronomy book, and just look at these giant pictures from outer space. And he said that shaped his worship Almost as much, never as much, but almost as much as reading the Bible because he began to see how big God really was. There are billions and billions, or not billions, but there are hundreds of pictures that you could see. But I want to show you a rather famous picture that has blown the minds of some people, including Louis Giglio. This is a picture here. Uh, that picture here. Pretty famous. It came back a series of pictures. They call it a family portrait of pictures. Basically, uh, near 1990, Space Shuttle Voyager went up into space. It was commissioned, one of the lead scientists was a man named uh, Carl Sagan, who's a very well-known atheist astronomer scientist. And so he and a group of other people sent this Voyager up, and their mission was um, to be the first to get outside of the solar system in order that they could take pictures of the world from outside of outside of our solar system. And so um, as they were just getting, uh, just leaving the solar system, Carl Sagan sent a message that, hey, why don't you turn around, make a quick U-turn, and just take pictures of what you see. And because the, the pictures, what they saw was so big, they had to take 60 photos. And they didn't have iPhones back then. They didn't have digital cameras. It was just these, these, these 
big old cameras that they had to use, and 60 times, boom, 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 took 60 pictures, and then they spliced them all together to come up with this composite family picture. This is the Voyager taking this, turns around, looks back at the world that they had left, and took a picture of all that they could see, and this is what they saw, right? It's pretty crazy, right? Um, that means nothing to us. But the next picture says, you are here. I don't know if you can see that, but the arrow is pointing to a tiny little dot. And that tiny little dot is this great big planet that we inhabit called Earth. It says, you are here. That's not even us. Like, we live on that dot. Like, it, we wouldn't even show up on that dot. That's how little we are. And the puniness of our seeming greatness begins to fade away in light of the massive enormity of God. What David says, and make no mistake about it, is that God didn't, he's not still working to build and expand this universe. He's not like, let me just read what it says. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers. You get that? David doesn't say, the work of your arms. In other places, the Bible says, is the arm of the Lord too short to save? His arms, which are strong and probably muscular. Doesn't say that. Doesn't say when I consider the work of your hands. Hands which mold and create and shape and form. It says the work of your fingers. Finger painting to God. The creation of the cosmos, which is infinitely bigger than we could ever dare to imagine child's play to our God. Just blip, and all of that was there. We are not the center of this universe. We are not the center of our lives. This world does not revolve around the holy trinity of me, myself, and I. It is not about you, and it is not about me. It never has been. It never will be. This is about God, and it's about his glory. Let me read you what this atheist, Carl Sagan, had to say about that dot right there upon which we live. He says, look again at that dot. And you probably can't, you can't even see it from where you are. Trust me, it's there. Look again at that dot. He says, that's here. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone you love Everyone you know, everyone you've ever heard of, every human being who ever was, lived out their lives on that dot. The aggregate of our joy and suffering, thousands of confident religions, ideologies, and economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every mother and father, hopeful child, inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species live there on a moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam. The earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic 
arena. Think of the rivers of blood spilled by all those generals and emperors so that in glory and triumph, they could become the momentary masters of a fraction of a dot. Our posturing, our imagined self-importance challenged by this point of pale light. That's who we are in light of who God is. The finger of God creating everything. Glory so vast that it has been set above the heavens. What does it mean for us to worship God well? Is it really about us and the songs that we sing? Or is it about us seeing and bowing before the greatness of a one who has invited us into this experience of worship? That's our God. Neil Armstrong, after he walked on the moon, when he was leaving, he looked at the solar system, he looked at all that stuff, and he put out his thumb, and he says, with my thumb, I could block out the earth. And then he said, rather than making me feel really big, made me feel really small. Who are we that God would see and notice us? There's a hymn writer named Stuart Hine who was a British missionary in Ukraine. And he took these words and he translated into English and he wrote this great hymn that was the first hymn that I ever remember singing in a church context. He says, in light of all this, he says, O Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made, I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. God's glory is seen in every corner and crevice of the world, in all of creation, in all of the cosmos. His name is to be praised majestic in all of the earth, but the glory and the majesty of God isn't just some remote thing. There is a name and there is a face. And his name is Jesus. The God of ages, the finger work of which is this universe in which we live, including that pale blue dot. The God of ages stepped down from glory to wear my sin and bear my shame. What kind of a God is this? And as Stuart Hine was thinking of the majesty and the glory and the greatness of God, 
He heard a group of Russian people giving their lives to Christ, and in praise and worship, they began just shouting out these words with no fear, with no shame, with abandonment, and those words he wrote down and turned into the third verse, and it says, and when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in, that on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin, then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. The glory of God is not only seen in the cosmos and in the creation, but who would have thought that the way that God would silence his enemies was by squeezing himself into an infant. And the one of infinite glory, worth, power, might, and majesty became dependent upon a teenage mother for his survival. And yet when that child grew up, he gave his life and he lived the life that we should have lived and he died the death that we should have died. He hung on a cross in order that the enemies of God would one day forever be vanquished and silenced. And when he comes again, he won't come as a weak baby, but he'll come as the Lord and the defender and the ruler of all that every knee in all of the earth will bow and say, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the God that you and I have come to worship today. There is no one like him. No one can even compare. As we consider who he is, Let's let him resize us, reshape us before his glory in light of his majesty that we might join with all creation, the stars, the sun, the moon, and all the planets in declaring, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. May that be said of our lives as well. Let's pray. we respond to the word of God this morning. Let's take a moment to respond in a way that would be appropriate for you. Maybe for some of us, in all of this God, we join with the writer of the Ecclesiastes when he says, you are God in heaven and here am I on earth. So let my words be few. And let me just stand in all of you. <coughs> Maybe for others of us, we confess, God, I've made you too small in my eyes. I've become big. People have become big. You've become little. Resize me. Be resized in my eyes. Maybe for others, it's just you just want to confess sin before the Lord. In light of a God so great, you just want to lay down your heart before him. Say, God, I need you. Lord, I need you to show me who you are, to show me who I am. Let's just take a minute right now to pray to the Lord God. Ask that he would meet with us. God of ages. Step down from glory. To wear my sin. Bear my shame. To come to this table, that's what we remember. That's what we declare. That's what we 
So we confess as we come. Let's spend a few moments right now in prayer. 60 seconds, and then I'll pray for us. And then we're going to come and receive God's grace at this table. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that the one who created all that we see with the naked eye, all that we see through telescopes, all that we see through planetariums and observatories and all the man-made devices to try to see somehow a glimpse of the glory of God. Father, you're far bigger and greater than all of that, far bigger than we could ever know. You're not just a little God who's a little bit bigger than us, a little bit smarter, a little bit better, a little bit stronger, but you are God, infinite, eternal, immortal, God only wise. This is who you are. So we thank you that you would stoop down to care for people like us. Oh, how we need you. Lord, help us to worship you rightly in light of the glory of God in creation, glory of God in Christ. May we see you, may we love you, that you draw us near to you as we come to this table of grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.